Well, let's pray this morning as we look at God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray as we look at your word today that you would help us to understand what it means, but more so to take it and apply it in our hearts and our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years back, I had the chance to visit Germany, home of Martin Luther. He was the great reformer of 500 years ago who changed so many things in the way that we do church now. And his early life had quite a few surprises. In 1505, while he was returning to university on horseback, a lightning bolt struck near him during a thunderstorm, and he realized that he had narrowly cheated death. There and then, he decided to become a monk and dropped out of university. He told his father he was terrified of death and divine judgment. As a monk, Luther devoted himself to long hours of fasting, long hours in prayer, frequent confession, and he knew that he stood unrighteous before God. If ever there was someone who tried to get right with God by good works, it was Martin Luther. Luther had intense feelings of guilt. He had a complete lack of assurance. He strived for perfectionism as he strived to um, avoid any possible sin. Luther later described this period of his life as one of deep spiritual despair. He said, I lost touch with Christ, the Savior and Comforter and made him the jailer and hangman of my poor soul. Well, nothing he did could free him from this feeling of unrighteousness before God. During long hours in his monastic cell, Luther studied the Bible. Every page told him what he already knew, that he was a sinner before God. Eventually, he came to the book of Romans, and he came to understand the doctrine of justification by faith as entirely the work of God. He was saved by grace alone. It was clear that he stood righteous before God. But still, he had to deal with the fact that day by day, he continued to sin. Even though he was a Christian, he knew he still sinned. Relief came at last when he reached Romans 4. He found a way to fit these two ideas together in the maxim that every Christian stands before God, righteous, yet a sinner. And when he worked that out, a weight lifted from his shoulders. Whenever he sinned, he knew that he stood righteous before God. And it's something that we need as well. Too often we feel guilty as we see that we continue to sin in our own lives. Too often we lack assurance about whether we stand righteous before God. Now, some Christians drop in despair and exhaustion. Others, like Luther, try to live up to a perfect life of perfection and then beat themselves up when they can't. But there's a better way. Come with me as we dive deep into Romans 4 and learn how we too can see ourselves as righteous, yet a sinner. Well, we can sum up the message of the first three chapters of Romans by saying that each, Christ, each human stands unrighteous before God. The, the record of our sins cuts us off from God. We are unrighteous. We need to be justified. We need to be made right with God. But how is that possible? 
to answer the question, Paul takes us back to the story of Abraham near the beginning of the Bible. He shows how Abraham was saved by God. Abraham moved from unrighteous to righteous. Paul quotes Genesis 15, 6, the one verse from the Old Testament that holds the key to this salvation. Have a look at Romans 4 from verse 3. What does Scripture say, Paul asks, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And for the rest of this chapter, Paul will toss around this key phrase until he shows us the path from righteousness to from unrighteousness to righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This key phrase shows us how a broken relationship with God can be reconciled from God's enemy to God's friend. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, this is a bit of an odd term, credited, and it kind of holds the key to everything here. So before we jump into Romans 4, We're going to look at the other place in the New Testament where this same phrase is used. It's worth doing that because that gives us some key clues that will help us understand what it's saying in Romans 4. Credited is the term Paul uses when he writes to his friend Philemon. Philemon was a wealthy businessman in Colossae. He was one of the leading figures in the church at Colossae. One of the slaves ran away from his household and took some money belonging to Philemon. And that runaway slave somehow made his way to Rome. And there he somehow became Christian. And he met Paul, who was living in Rome at the time. And Paul told him to do the right thing and go back to his master Philemon. Now, it was a big risk because Philemon had the right to execute a runaway slave. And if he didn't, he could still treat the runaway slave as badly as he likes. So Paul writes a letter, which we have in our Bible, to Philemon to accept back his runaway slave. But for that to work... Paul's got to work out how he's going to restore this broken relationship between Philemon and the runaway slave. Paul thinks very carefully he's going to do that. The first problem he's got to deal with is the fact that this runaway slave took some money from Philemon. No reconciliation is going to be possible until that wrong is paid for. And here's where Paul uses the term credit or charge, as he puts it. Look at verse 18 of Philemon where Paul says... Um, to Philemon, if he has done any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. Charge it to me. Move the accounts around so the debt doesn't count against him. Make it a debt owing to Paul, not the runaway slave. Don't count it against the runaway slave. That's the first step to fixing broken relationship between Philemon and the runaway slave. Charge the amount owing to Paul so that Philemon is not out of pocket. But you and I can both work out that that's really not going to fix the broken relationship because even with the debt paid, when that runaway slave comes back, he's going to be in the doghouse. He's never going to be trusted again. So charging the amount owing is only the first step to reconciliation. To restore the broken relationship with the runaway slave, Paul knows it's more than dealing with debts owing. It needs some kind of a positive. So look at what... Um, Paul says to Philemon in verse 17, if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome him. 
Paul wants Philemon to swap the goodwill he has towards Paul and credit it to the runaway slave. Philemon is to see the runaway slave in the same position as he sees Paul. Philemon is to count the runaway slave as his Christian brother, no matter their social status, a slave and master. In Christ, there is no slave and no free man. They stand equal before God and they must be reconciled first as Christian brothers. Now, Paul's language here is something Philemon can relate to. He's a businessman. He knows how to move accounts, move his accounts around, so amounts owing from one person are now owing to another person. And if he can put this into practice in real life, then Philemon and the runaway slave will be reconciled. The key here is the term credited or charged as a means to reconciliation. So let's sum up what happens. To heal the broken relationship between Philemon and the runaway slave, there are two things. First, any debts owing must be dealt with. As long as there are debts owing, there are going to be, there's going to be no reconciliation possible. But there's a second thing needed to fix the broken relationship. Wiping away debts will not restore our relationship because there's no more trust. We need a positive here. Somehow, there must be goodwill before the party who has done wrong can come back. Only with something positive can the parties be fully reconciled. Now, keep that idea in mind because that's going to help us understand the much bigger process of restoring the broken relationship between humans and God. Okay, let's get back to our key phrase. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We're trying to toss this phrase around and pull out some more clues about the way to salvation. Paul shows us that Abraham was saved by faith and not by works. Have a look at verse 4 where Paul says, Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, however, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So this way of salvation doesn't come through works. It isn't like the case where the boss has to pay you because you earned that um, money. Abraham's account books before God did not get adjusted because he earned it. Abraham's account books were adjusted solely because he trusted in God. It's nothing Abraham did to earn it. It's a gift from God. So whichever way this accounting system goes, good works are not credited as righteousness. And that's why verse 5 is really good news. For the one who trusts in God, their faith is credited as righteousness. The accounts are adjusted to give them the positive they need for relating to God. We never have to try and earn our way to God. We never have to try to impress God with our good works. So to sum it up, good works are not credited as righteousness. We learn from Abraham that faith alone leads God to credit someone with the positive needed to be righteous before God. There is only one way to be right with God. God must credit someone with a positive righteousness, and that comes as someone trusts in God. Okay, but there's still a problem here, right? 
because God can credit a positive righteousness that's needed to be right with him, but there also must be no negatives on our account. We will not be righteous if sin is counted against us. And it's here that Paul looks to the life of another Old Testament character, David. Now, you probably remember him from Sunday school as the kid with the slingshot that killed Goliath and got rid of a whole army that was threatening God's people. And you probably heard your Sunday school teacher say he was described as a man after God's own heart and went on to become king of the whole country. But what they probably didn't tell you in Sunday school is that later on David sinned in the worst way possible. He seduced a married woman while her husband was away at war. And when he couldn't cover it up, he used his powers as king to arrange for the man to be killed. Oh, David understood the depths of sin and he knew that God would never credit him with righteousness if those sins were counted against him. And so Paul, he quotes from one of David's Psalms in Romans chapter 4, from verse 7. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. You see, if there are negatives on our accounts with God, and I'm talking any sort of sin that stands against us, then we will not stand righteous before God. Good works can't help get us there because they can never get rid of that record of sins that stands against us. God must not count our sins against us or we will never be right with him. And worse still, our experience as a Christian is that we go on sinning every day and adding to the debt of sin that stands against us. But somehow, here, King David assures us that there is a way for God to cover our sins so they're not counted against us. God has set up a way to cover our sins and credit us the righteousness we need to be saved. And somehow... The key to all of this is faith, like Abraham had. Okay, that's a pretty complex lot of ideas there. So let me give you a summary of the way to be right with God. In short, we have our sin standing between us and God as a giant negative, and we will continue to add to the negatives through our lives as we commit more sins. To be righteous before God, we need two things. First, God must not count our sins against us. But even if God does not count our sins against us, then that will only leave us in a neutral position before God. We also need God to credit us so that we have a positive righteousness before God. All right, so more of the pieces of this puzzle are falling into place, but we're not there yet. So far, we found that works won't make us righteous. The key is faith. And in this next section, Paul looks at the idea of faith more deeply. And again, we go back to the life of Abraham. Now, if faith is the key to all of this, what does it mean to have faith? Does it mean believing the right things? Well, it means at least this. But it has to be more than right intellectual belief. As the book of James reminds us, even demons believe the right things about God. And there's no way that they're going to be saved. 
On the other hand, faith is not a work. If you concentrate harder and focus more on God, that doesn't mean you're any less saved or more saved either. Faith doesn't work like that. So what does it mean to have faith? Well, we need a good answer to this because it's the key to a right relationship with God. And Paul spells out what faith is like by looking at the life of Abraham. So let's go back to Genesis 15. Just before this verse we've been tossing around uh, in chapter 4, God called Abraham and told him his descendants would become a great nation. God took Abraham outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And here's our verse, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But at that time, there was a problem because Abraham had no son. He was nearly 100 years old and his wife couldn't have children. So there was no humanly way that Abraham could keep that promise. Abraham had no means to obey God by having children. Abraham could do nothing himself to fulfill the promise. Now, he could have adopted an heir. That was common practice back in those days for people who didn't have a son, but he didn't. Abraham believed God's promises and waited until God gave him the son who would fulfill his promise of many descendants. Abraham shaped his life around the promise God had given him. Abraham had faith in God. And what mattered was his faith that God will fulfill the promise he had made. Look how Paul picks that up in verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. So faith is the key. Not just faith in the sense of believing the right things, but faith put into action in life, faith that shapes life around God's promises. That helps us understand what it means when we say, Abraham believed God, and it was credited as, to him as righteousness. So faith is the key, not just faith in terms of believing the right things, but faith put into action in life, faith that shapes life around God's promises. This was the way of salvation for Abraham and his descendants. But there's a few problems here, aren't there? Yeah, on the one hand, God seems unjust if he just wipes away our sins without payment. I mean, even Paul said, charge it to me if the runaway slave owed Philemon anything. Payment's got to be made for sins. Payment's got to be made for debts. Another problem is that I just can't be considered righteous if I haven't kept the law. At best, it's a legal fiction. At worst, it makes God look unfair. And unless we can sort of fix up those missing pieces to this puzzle, then this path to salvation is not credible. It doesn't quite fit together. 
And so in these last few verses, Paul shows how Jesus fills in these missing pieces and makes the whole system work. These last few verses show that these promises were not just for Abraham, but for us as well. Look at verse 23 where Paul says, The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Our faith is now directed at Jesus. Abraham did have many descendants when God fulfilled his promise, and one of them was Jesus, and he is now the focus of our faith. Put your faith in Jesus, the one whom God has raised from the dead. Next, remember that Jesus pays for our sins. To be right with God, God must not count our sins against us. Verse 25 says that he was delivered over to death for our sins. Paul um, was ready to pay any debts owed by that runaway slave, and that was the key to reconciliation there. So too, Jesus pays for our sin, so God does not count it against us. Even when we continue to sin as a Christian, God does not count it against us. All our sins have been paid for when Jesus died on the cross. But it doesn't stop there. Look at the end of verse 25. He was raised to life for our justification. Jesus' act of salvation brings us the positive we need to be right with God. Jesus alone of any human scored the 100% pass mark when it came to obedience to the law. He can certainly be declared righteous. God credits this 100% pass mark from Jesus to each Christian. We receive the positive righteousness we need for a relationship with God. God credits its credits it us as righteousness. Notice all of this is completely God's action. Humans haven't done anything yet. All we have is faith in what Jesus has done as he died and rose again. So while each Christian remains a sinner, God credits them as righteous. God does not count sins against a Christian because these have been paid for by Jesus. God credits the 100% pass mark Jesus received for obeying the law so that his followers now stand right before God. That's the way to salvation. And now we can see the great truth here that we need to trust. Christians are not delivered from the presence of sin when we're saved. We continue to to, um, sin even after we're saved. We continue to sin. And that created a big crisis for Martin Luther, who felt guilty every time he sinned. He lacked assurance that he was saved. He tried to live a life of perfection to deal with it. But after he understood this idea in Romans 4, Martin Luther realized God won't count our sin against us because it has been paid for by Jesus. God will credit Jesus' perfect righteousness to us. Christians are delivered from the penalty of sin even while we continue to sin. Every Christian is righteous, yet a sinner. 
And once he grasped that truth, Martin Luther's Christian walk was transformed. Righteous, yet a sinner, showed him how to hold this whole messy thing together. Righteous, yet a sinner. It's the key for us when we find that we continue to sin. Righteous, yet a sinner. Let's think about three areas. First up, the idea of righteous, yet a sinner, means we have assurance. Now, sometime back I was talking to Troy, who was a very young Christian. His life had visibly turned around when he heard the good news about Jesus and accepted Jesus as his saviour and Lord. As often happens for young Christians, he saw very great changes not just in his attitudes, but also in his behavior. It continued over days and weeks and even months. But one day, he was very shocked when he fell back into sin. He'd struggled with this area of sin before he became a Christian, but had been gone for so long that he thought it was no longer part of his life. And when he got around to talking to me, he was saying to me, I'm just not even sure if I'm a Christian now. It took us a while to work it through, but what I said to him basically boiled down to the idea of righteous yet a sinner. He was right to take the sin seriously. He needed to confess it to God, but he also needed to rely on the fact that God sees him as righteous. His standing before God is all about what Jesus has done. It's not about what he has done. And that's important for us as well. When you sin, sometimes you might wonder if you're really saved. Notice I said when you sin, not if you sin. When you sin, you might wonder if you're really saved, especially if it's a really serious sin. If that happens, remember that you are righteous yet a sinner. You are righteous before God because of what Jesus has done. If ever you wonder if you're saved, know that it's not about what you have done, but what Jesus has done. Righteous yet a sinner. Remind yourself that you are righteous because of what Jesus has done and keep reminding yourself that you have until you have the assurance that you are saved. Righteous yet a sinner. That will bring us the assurance we need. Another challenge from the presence of sin in our life is guilty feelings. Many times we're able to ask God for forgiveness for something we've done wrong and just move on. But sometimes the guilty feelings just won't go away. I remember talking to a Christian friend who was constantly struggling with feeling guilty. His guilty feelings came from an ongoing sin he was struggling with over a very long period. The sin would come back. He would confess it to God. He felt okay after that, but not for long um, because his feelings of guilt became more and more intense as this sin kept recurring. And he began to be unsure whether God would forgive him. And then as he felt more and more guilty, he didn't feel like he'd be able to uh, bring it to God. So he felt more cut off from God. And 
then he just felt more and more and more guilty over time. So we got to talking about it, and I told him that guilt is a good warning, that sin is a serious thing, it's a good motivator for you to stay away from it. But when you get to the point where your continuing guilt makes you unsure you're forgiven, you need to remember that you are righteous, yet a sinner. I reminded him, Christians do continue to sin, and we do continue to have repeat sins that are hard to get rid of, but the good news is that God does not count these sins against us. We stand righteous before God because of what Jesus has done. Jesus has paid for our sins. God credits the 100% pass mark of Jesus' obedience to us. There is nothing that stands between us and God. There are no barriers between you and God, even if you feel guilty. That's the only way you can move forward when you feel overwhelmed by your guilt. Hang on to the truth that you are righteous, yet a sinner. Another challenge that some Christians face when confronted by their ongoing sin is this idea of perfectionism. Martin Luther was the the big guy that faced this problem. He worked harder and harder to avoid sin. He became a monk. He fasted. He got rid of his possessions. He wore a thin gown in winter. He tried everything he could to live a sinless life. But all of it did no good. He was still confronted by the presence of sin in his life, whereas some could delude themselves that they are perfect. Martin Luther could never do that. He just fell further and further into despair as each new sin reared its ugly head. He had no solution until he worked out this idea of righteous, yet a sinner from Romans 4. And the key here was that he had to accept that, yes, he really was a sinner and that he really did go on sinning after he was saved. And he had to accept that he needed saving by grace because none of his many good works could save him. Righteous, yet a sinner, was the only thing that could set him free from perfectionism. Now, I'm not sure if you're like that, but if you find yourself striving to live a perfect life, remind yourself that you are really a sinner and nothing you can do is going to fix that problem. It's only the work of Jesus that can make you righteous. Hold these two ideas together. Righteous yet a sinner. Jesus has done everything you need to stand right before God. Let me pray for us as we finish today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you credit us as righteous through what Jesus has done. Help us not to take sin lightly, but help us keep looking to Jesus when we lack assurance or feel guilty. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.